0: Hello everyone and welcome once again to Motos and Friends, the weekly podcast brought to you by the editorial team at Ultimate Motorcycling. My name is Arthur Coldwells. Motos and Friends is brought to you by the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and the most aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Head into your local Suzuki dealer now, Or visit SuzukiCycles.com to learn more. In this week's first segment, Associate Editor TJ Adams and I discuss the new Yamaha XSR700. That's the retro-styled version of the MT-07 that comes in any colour you like, as long as it's black. Actually, it looks really good with the gold accents on the gas tank and the matching gold wheels. TJ tells us whether there's a decent bike lurking underneath all that flash. In our second segment, I chat with Steve Rapp. An ex factory Suzuki and Ducati rider in the Moto America race series, Steve, among many other accomplishments, won the prestigious Daytona 200. He also competed with real credibility in a couple of MotoGP races for Richard Stamboli of Attack Performance. Since Steve retired from professional road racing, He became a commercial jet pilot flying A320s out of LAX for Alaska Airlines. I suspect he's the only airline captain that's also an ex-professional motorcycle racer. Steve's calm matter-of-fact delivery when talking about his high-speed escapades was interesting to say the least. Very impressive guy indeed. So from all of us here at Ultimate Motorcycling we hope you enjoy this episode. Reputation precedes it. Unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. Led by the Suzuki Intelligent Ride System, the Hayabusa gives riders a comprehensive collection of electronic rider aids, like the bi-directional quick shifter, the drive mode selector, launch control system, and the cruise control system that simultaneously increases performance, comfort, and rideability. While its advanced analog and TFT LCD display panel connects you to the ride like never before, Blending over 20 years of tradition with innovation. Plus, it comes in three new eye catching color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits, so head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit SuzukiCycles.com to learn more. Okay, so this morning we are going to talk about the Yamaha XSR seven hundred. That is the seven hundred cc parallel twin uh, motorcycle from Yamaha. That is part of the Sport Heritage line. In other words, it's the MT07 with a retro look to it.
1: Yeah, it has more of a uh, an old school feel when you well and look <laughs> when you look at it. <laughs> yeah,
0: very definitely. So I think probably the big questions that everybody has is what is the difference? Is there any difference between the MT-07 and the XSR 700 other than looks? And essentially the first thing that we we notice when we look at the the spec sheets is that the retro version, the XSR that you're riding is $8,899 dollars as opposed to $8,199. Mm,
1: yes, that is a big difference.
0: Yeah, it's about 600 bucks, actually. So it's about 600 bucks more if you want the retro version. So my first question to you is, what was your feeling when you first got on it? You were very used to that Kawasaki Z650 retro that you had. Did you feel any difference with the Yamaha?
1: I did. Oh, yes. The Z650 was a different kettle of fish. Um... First of all, the looks on the XSR 700, the Yamaha, it's more of a, an industrial look, which I liked. I I didn't love it being all black, but that's just my personal taste. But now that I've ridden it for a, a while and, you know, had comments from people, it's a really interesting looking bike. and you know I've sort of settled on the all black I mean it has the highlights it has the gold wheels which I love and the so, gold
0: highlights around the engine and what have you so it's yeah. basically black and gold it's like it is to us uh, to us old giffers it's like the old John Player special colors <laughs> exactly <laughs>
1: <Yeah>. <laughs> but I'm just using more colorful bikes on the road but right. now I love it I really love it I feel ultra cool when I'm riding it and it's got that nice industrial looking headlight and tail light it has a good start and a good ending <laughs> um so then the feel, um, very comfortable. When I first got on, I thought, oh, this is going to be a bit higher because I looked at the seat height on the specs, and it's it's 32.9. I've got a 29-inch inseam, and I always check the seat heights because then I'll know if I'm going to be able to sort of maneuver around. So it's a little bit higher, actually, than the MTO 7 But even I was really surprised because when you you're actually sitting still on it and your legs are straight down, I could flat foot because it's got a nice slim waist. It sort of nips in around the seat where you're sitting. Interesting. Yeah. So it's
0: it's got almost a 33 inch seat seat height height. and yet yet you can flat foot on it really very easily.
1: Yeah, when I'm stationary. I mean, I have to be on my, the balls of my feet and tippy-toes a little bit when I'm shuffling around, you know, if you're trying to manoeuvre into your parking space. Sure. But that's great for me. I like it when I can stop at the lights and put my feet down. Yeah. <laughs> Everybody's probably heard that a million times, but for me, that's important. So that was a pleasant surprise. And then it's it's just easy to ride. It's It's got a nice weight of controls. You're not sort of having to struggle with clutch and brake it's all very easy
0: so the clutch is very light to use and the throttle doesn't have a heavy spring tension no
1: both nice and but not too light you know you you feel you're doing something okay but um no struggle there at all and just uh friendly
0: okay all right cool the both of the bikes have exactly the same engine so these are 689cc, so they're not quite 700cc. Liquid-cooled, double overhead camshaft, you know, four valves per cylinder, blah, blah, blah. But essentially, they're what we call a parallel twin. Yes. In other words, they have twin cylinders, um, which back in the old English days, back in the sort of the 50s and the 60s, these things would vibrate themselves apart. <laughs> but uh, but modern modern parallel twins have balancer shafts in them. So they have... A rotating shaft in the engine that essentially offsets the the, uh, the the reciprocating weight of the pistons going up and down. So the engines feel absolutely smooth. That's
1: a really interesting solution. I didn't know that was happening, but I can tell you <laughs> there was no vibration. This is
0: So the engine feels really smooth.
1: Oh yes. Yeah. Okay, perfect. I loved it. That's one of the things that stood out for me. that, that it has a sort of a rumble, and you know, as you accelerate and it has got some good acceleration, some good pull. And you get this sort of like a nice sound from the engine. Right. I love that.
0: Right. Well, the interesting thing about twin cylinder engines is they have lots of low down torque. So low down torque means that you don't have to rev this thing through the gears to really enjoy the ride. How did you feel with, we've been through some pretty tight canyons in the last couple of days, some really technical things. How did you feel about that? I went
1: up the, gears quite quickly but but pulling away and keeping up with you guys i've been on a lot of different bikes lately and this was a a real pleasure because i could sort of keep up with you pretty easily i'm not saying i could (laughs) you kept up with
0: no problem
1: (laughs) sort of race you and overtake you but uh, i didn't feel that i had to keep um struggling to get through the traffic and keep up with you it really has got a lot of pull and i enjoyed that it makes me feel safer and uh Yeah, You know, top end's all well and good, but you don't sort of actually rev around flat out the whole time when you're riding. And then you get more pleasure when you're riding through twists and curves. You just know that you can pull around the, the, the turn without sort of flailing around because it's got that tug you can feel the engine okay really enjoyed it
0: so were you able to ride in a in a higher gear than in first and second in other words you were using the low down torque of the engine to yes. really pull you out of the yeah corner.
1: definitely higher gears
0: so you were able to use surprise myself yes okay so gears that you would typically have thought you should be taking in first or second you were taking in second or third yes
1: exactly i do i do lean towards changing down when i'm feeling a bit anxious about doing something because I do like to feel the engine doing its job. Um, It's a difficult thing to, to describe when you have a lot of confidence. You can just ride in sixth gear all the time and not really think about it. But I see something coming up. My first instinct is to change down. Not even to break, I'll change down before I break. You know, not if that's, it's an emergency. that's actually a very
0: healthy <laughs> habit to do. That's fine.
1: But this, I didn't. I I generally know which gear I'm in. I don't stress about that at all. But as I was sort of checking it, um, yeah, I was in sort of third and fourth gear, going around turns and curves that I normally would be, even you know, the really tight ones. Thinking about going down to second, so it was right. it was good.
0: The advantage of that is it means that you can uh, your inputs are smoother. Because when you're in first or second gear, it's very hard not to, when you come back on the throttle at the apex of a corner, it's very hard not to make the bike jerk. Definitely. The transition from off-throttle back to on-throttle can be quite jerky, and especially in first gear.
1: So I wouldn't be in first, but I yeah. But I if you're in third or fourth th-
0: gear and the bike has the engine torque to pull without lugging the engine or stalling or anything. In other words, if you're going slowly and you're in third or fourth, and you just wind on that throttle a little bit and the engine picks up Yes, well.
1: big difference. There's a big difference. Because if you're, if you're down in seconds, so I'm not recommending that to anybody, if you're, if you're riding like in the way I do, um, you sort of have all that jerkiness going on. You go to pull away and you jerk, and of course that puts you off a little bit. It all happens in an instant, but being up in a higher gear is definitely much nicer.
0: Much smoother. Yeah, so, so how about... Um, not that we did any sort of real top speed riding but we did quite a lot of fast riding does the bike sort of run out of puff at 50 or 60 miles an hour or does it really feel oh, like no. it's, got, it's got plenty to go
1: it's got plenty to go yeah it wants to keep going as well okay and it was still no vibrations, smooth i always you know i check my mirrors a lot on the freeways and what have you and we have all those bumpy freeways here and right. very still yeah right it was good
0: good What's the engine braking like? So in other words, when we're coming off a freeway and we're coming to the off-ramp and you're not braking, but you've just come off the throttle in a high gear, say six, does the bike slow oh. down dramatically and want to pitch you over the no, handlebars? No,
1: no. Or is um, it really manageable? It's manageable, it's smooth. Um, okay. I do change down sooner than I probably would on a, on another bike in that situation because um, it's it, the engine braking isn't dramatic. Okay. So, um, but certainly it's smooth.
0: Right. Good, excellent. So overall you really like the engine. It's you know, fuel injected, you've got six speed gearbox. Yes. So it's a really just a nice riding power plant in this thing.
1: Yes, definitely.
0: Good. Okay. The chassis, this is where there is a little bit of a difference between the MT07 and the XSR retro one that you were riding. Yes, yes. The chassis, it's quite interesting because the MT07 is ever so slightly sportier than the xsr 700 the mt07 has slightly bigger front brakes it's got a 298 millimeter disc on the front or discs instead of 282 millimeter you know another was it sort of 16 millimeters yes yeah,
1: so it, that the mt07 is expecting a sporty rider
0: a slightly harder brakes the brakes are going to run a little bit cooler with the, with the bigger rotors, there's a little bit more uh, surface area for the brake pads to clamp down. But th- that's not to say there was anything lacking with the XSR, was it? Or or did you feel the brakes could have done with the
1: Oh, brake no. Pad? I didn't feel anything was lacking at all, no. Okay. Would I have noticed comparing one to the other? I'm, I'm not so sure. I just have an overall feeling that um, the XSR700 leans towards being flexible for going on longer journeys, um, slightly more comfort riding, whereas the MT-07 is a bit more committed. If you're a sporty rider, you know, you like nicking around and doing doing some racy stuff. I think that's the one for you. But the XSR700, I think, if you've got a passenger you like to take now and again, or you're going to go on longer day trips out, cruising around, sightseeing, um, I think you'd be really pleased. You know, yeah. it's even the seating arrangement, it's got a, a wider I don't I didn't sort of sit from one to the other. I wouldn't want to say softer, but it's definitely more passenger friendly. It's got Yeah. The seat is all one height on the XSR seven hundred. Well, not quite well, but it, it, but it, but it is it is than a one
0: piece seat. The,
1: it's a one piece seat. Yeah. Whereas on the MTO seven you've got that, that sort big of,
0: step. Yes. Where the passenger is sitting quite a lot higher than the
1: than the rider. Yes. Um, um, so I think if you're going going with a passenger lot, um, the XSR is the one.
0: Yeah. You know what I really liked about the XSR, the the seat, is the seat cover. Yes. It's got that Amazing. kind of fake suede look to it and, and sort yeah. of a feel on, around the passenger side of it.
1: It's a faux leather that has a bit of sort of texture. Yeah. And it gives That's... a bit of extra grip. And they've put the handle the strap across the seat which not everybody uses but it certainly is a nice touch because some people do yeah yeah. well also if passengers are um on the smaller side if you're taking a younger person a child i'm not talking about babies obviously but you know (laughs) somewhere in between (laughs) they will often want to hold on to that little strap when you're parking and maneuvering around yeah they tend to sort of grip your jacket and what have you when you're actually riding but sure Um, i think that's a nice touch could easily be left off but you know they'd bother to put it on there and it has a little kick up at the back of the seats you feel snug yeah on your backside
0: yeah yeah going back to the brakes really the key with brakes is how they feel on initial bite Mm. and the second part is how much power they have do they do they fade or not so how did you how did you feel about, certainly on initial application, if you're coming at speed, say, coming off the freeway?
1: They're not snatchy at all, and I have okay. had that. I know there are other bikes, um, Italian bikes, that tend to be really feisty. You know, you think, oh, jeez, I shouldn't have grabbed that so hard. But on the XSR 700, it was... Um, a smooth delivery you could just give a squeeze and it took you through and no didn't fade didn't run out you could stop really quickly and feel confident that you were going to stop
0: right now both of these bikes have full abs that's anti-lock braking system front
1: and back yes so which i love
0: which is really great not that you probably used it. Did you feel that the ABS kicking? No, kick I did in? not. No, no. Okay, but good.
1: knowing it's there is all the better.
0: You know, it's just one of those safety things. It's it's like any insurance policy. It's like you don't need it until you do.
1: Yeah, and when I mean, you do
0: need it, you're glad you've got it.
1: If if it's not on a bike, and we ride some old bikes when when we go out, then it's. It's really sort of like the bad old days. That's one of the things right. which I wish we'd had back in the day.
0: Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> when you yeah, you see and me both.
1: really have an emergency stuff and then you just slide into high heaven. <laughs> yeah.
0: <laughs> yeah. So uh, they both have the same wheels, obviously, different colors. The XSR has gold colored wheels, which really offsets that Raven black. It's really nice. Um,
1: yeah, I, I like that. I think they're interesting. I, to keep know, I clean love as well. the
0: look of this bike. I don't want to keep mm. going on about it, but I just love the look of this raven black and I love that sort of retro tank and yeah let's see anyway um
1: (laughs) I do I do now (laughs) initially I was a little bit shocked because you know we chop and change our our rides a lot and for me it was just the all black thing and then you look at it and naturally different fabrics show slightly different blacks but then you know once I'd walked around and and really studied it a little bit I was like yeah this is cool it's really as I use the description industrial look
2: yeah got sort of those um
1: led lights but they've done them in such a way that it's interesting it's almost got sort of rivets around it or that sort of look yeah and the clocks as well the clock is um you know the dashboard what do you call it the well the instrument instrument pod is yeah it's round really like that and it's actually to one side which you might think is is gonna put you off but it was really i just loved it i like things that are not all too symmetrical that's just me and Really I, easy I to see didn't it. like that, I have to say. Mm. That's
0: my one criticism is is it just felt really odd it, to me to have this instrument pod like sticking out to the left. It's I, cool. It and you've like, just got, it feels to me, like... it just felt like the, the right one had fallen off. <laughs> <laughs> <I was> like,
1: <laughs> to me, it just gives you right? clear vision straight across the top of the <laughs> okay. nice-looking headlight.
0: Yeah, each to their own. I would definitely get used to it. It wasn't like I hated it, but... I don't know, it just sort of set off my OCD a bit. I, don't, I just <laughs> would rather have it I symmetrically in the middle like you get a normal instrument pod.
1: The very first thing I noticed when you go down the gears and you slip into neutral, and I have to say, the neutral was easy to find. That was great. And it, I, found, I found it stayed in neutral. Some bites are just a bit too loose. You kind of go into neutral, it takes you to first, and you're like, oh, no. But this stayed in neutral, but instead of having the N sign or, or a zero, it had a little dash very first thing I was like, oh, but then I loved that even. I got used to it really quickly.
0: Yeah, yeah, yeah. As far as the instruments go on the XSR, I have to say they're absolutely incredibly clear. Yes. They've got, you know, big, thick digits. There is no question of what speed you're doing, what gear you're in. Mm. You know, the fuel gauge. I mean, they're just fantastic. They're really... It's really good. So other than the fact that it was stuck out on the left, which I found a bit odd. <laughs> which but, I liked. But as an instrument pod, they were really, it was great.
1: Yeah, um, and they have a clock, which not yeah? the manufacturers bother to put on. I like to glance down mm. and see the time and you can flick one of these switches and get the temperature. It's uh, easy to use. I did notice also that when you put your turn signal on, normally you would have an orange idiot light and it's green. But, you know, soon got used to that
0: oh good okay all right in going back to um the chassis and the suspension and the handling of the bike which is kind of the key they both have a 41 millimeter fork, so they both got exactly the same thing up at the front interestingly they have a slightly different shock the mt07 again has just a nod to its sportiness it has a rebound damping adjustment right. whereas the xsr does not Again, that's if somebody is on the MT-07 and they kind of step up their game a little bit, they might decide that they want to adjust at the rear. Um, how did you find the handling of the XSR?
1: It stayed true. We went through those really bumpy roads. I don't know the, <laughs> the number of the road, but going towards um, Thomas Aquinas, you know, through the way oh, to yeah.
0: Right.
1: Really bumpy.
0: It was nasty.
1: Unnerving yeah. bumpy, but not, not on this bike. It was fine. It stayed true. On, on the XSR700, I was pleased to say I didn't sort of feel I was being flipped left or right. It so just, it didn't
0: kick the back out at all? No, it just no. absorbed it. There was no banging from the back.
1: It just no, sort of it was, soaked it all up. It was great. I mean, these modern bikes, I can't yeah. imagine that anybody would have a problem with that these days. No. But yeah, if you're riding the MT... Uh, I'm going to say 07 because that's the way I say the MT 07. Right. You're going to probably be riding it differently because it's that whole sporty thing right so i can, I can see why they've upped the shock yeah. system
0: yeah they've just given it you've just got that ability to adjust it slightly mm. um for me on the street it, it, it's really it's only if your weight is different in other words if you're a, a bigger person and you're riding fast yes you might want to adjust the, the option yeah for sure you know, but i mean they both have preload adjustment and that kind of stuff i probably most people won't bother to touch mm. it but that's, you know on the MT, it's nice that it's there.
1: Another thing on the XSR seven hundred that you might think would be a problem, it doesn't have any sort of cowling or fairing. It has nothing. The headlight is right. the round headlight, which is hence its good looks, I think. And uh, I was sort of anticipating a bit of being knocked around on the freeway, a bit of buffeting. But right. it was actually fine. I don't know how they do that, but it was yeah. it was great. Yeah. I mean, I don't expect to sit um, behind a screen. That's not my desire. Um, I don't mind feeling the wind, (laughs) the wind in my hair or my ribbon, as I like to wear. But it was great. You know, it kind of gives me a feeling of this is I'm actually riding a motorbike, so I like it.
0: (laughs) Yeah. From a safety point of view, I have to say that front headlight on the XSR is awesome. It's fully LED. It's bright as heck. All the time I could look in my mirrors, I could see you were there. It was really good. Well, very excellent from a visibility standpoint.
1: That makes me feel good because that is a safety feature. But yeah. I have to tell you at this point, I had it on high beam. I ride most of the bikes on high beam yeah. for that very reason.
0: Yeah, the interesting thing was it didn't. it wasn't blinding at all. I mean, maybe at night... Because it's sufficiently it, good that probably at night well, on an unlit road
1: it would have been angled, didn't it? It would
0: high beam would probably blind people, but in, in the daytime, not at all. It was perfect,
1: and was you awesome. can generally tell you get a bit of body language from cars in front. You know when you get stuck behind somebody, you yeah, can see if they keep glancing in their mirror, and you get a right. feeling if you're annoying them. But I, I think it was fine on was, high beam. Nobody it mentioned great. it to me. We rode with lots of different people, yeah, and nobody was like, "Wow," you know,
0: yeah. Well, going back to the chassis, again, a slight difference is the rake and trail on the XSR is ever so slightly longer. It's a 25 degree rake on the XSR as opposed to 24 and a half degree rake on the MT-07. Now, what that's going to do is a slightly steeper rake angle is going to make the steering just very slightly quicker. Mm. Also, the wheelbase and the wheelbase is basically measured from the front Contact patch tyre, where the tyre touches the ground at the front, to where the tyre touches the, the ground at the back. Yes. That, that measurement is the wheelbase. Right. And the XSR has a very slightly longer wheelbase. It's literally 0.2 of an inch. It's 55.3 instead of 55.1. But the point is, is that the MT-07 with a slightly steeper rake and a slightly shorter wheelbase is going to turn just a tad more quickly than the XSR a yeah, I think just a tad
1: it's, quicker. it's great that Yamaha have put thought into every aspect of making the bikes slightly different, but different enough to be suitable for different riders. And as if you're riding MT-07, you're going to be, as I say, a bit more racy, like nipping maybe. around and
0: maybe a little. expecting yeah. to have
1: that sort of fun. Whereas on the XSR 700, it's great just to be out for a, a day's average cruise riding and seeing the sights but it still works i mean
0: the differences between the two fabio cuatararo could probably tell the difference you know when he's right at the outer edge of the limit (laughs) (laughs)
1: he's getting employed for that very reason
0: but but we would have to literally ride those two bikes back to back again and again on the same road on the same conditions to really be able to we might be able to to notice that the mt turned in a little bit quicker but essentially, these are both really stable, user-friendly motorcycles. Super, super user-friendly. Um, they both got same size fuel tanks, both 3.7 gallons, which doesn't sound like an awful lot. But at 58 mpg fuel mm-hmm. economy, I mean, these things are sippers. I mean, yes, you, could, you can go out you all day. Gotta, you know, you go out all day. It's great. The XSR is ever so slightly heavier. It's actually four pounds heavier. It's 410 pounds instead of 406 but again, these are both light motorcycles. Yes. Anything that's just just about the four hundred pound mark is going to be nice and maneuverable. So in short, you liked the handling, you felt it was stable I liked and the it handling. turned in gradually. Or? And
1: I didn't feel it was a hefty bike, maybe because of the way the balance of the weight is sort of low down enough, but you, I soon notice if a bike's difficult to maneuver around, but this was good. Um, okay. I'm a bit weedy and I'm a bit short and I could still move it around when we were parking and in the gas station, so I was really happy with it.
0: Yeah, you looked really comfortable on it, I have to say. Did I look
1: cool? You <laughs> looked cool. <Yes. laughs>
0: and and, and when you when you when you turn in, did it tend to sort of ch- dive into the corner no. or was it relatively neutral? It
1: did did do as I wanted. It was it was neutral, yes. It okay. was all right. Very nice to ride.
0: Yeah, it's got those Michelin Road 5 tyres on it that are really good. 180 section rear tyre. They're, they're good tyres, they grip well. And at the speeds we're doing on the road, we are never going to come anywhere close to to the limit of traction. No, Certainly I mean,
1: the I had a little slide, two little slides actually. and once on dusty stuff, but right. it was just picked up easily. I didn't yeah. panic. I probably made a loud noise.
0: i'm sure you probably talk to
1: myself a lot in my helmet (laughs) Right.
0: okay well that's absolutely terrific so overall who would you say the xsr 700 is aimed at now bearing in mind you've just come off the z650 which we decided was a beginner to perhaps you know early intermediate level rider do you think you need to be a little more experienced to ride the i think so i wouldn't say
1: beginner for the xsr but certainly, if you want to move up a level to a bigger bike, this is lovely. Yeah, I'd say, um, you'd feel confident and you'd feel good on it. You know, it's a decent size engine. A seven hundred is is decent. Yeah. A, yeah, it's a respectable. It's what I would call a big bike. You know, I know these days there are all these mid-range bikes, but um, I think you'd be very happy with that if you've got a little bit of experience, and confidence. You're gonna love it. You'll, you'll have fun and learn a lot and. Uh, be satisfied. I think with the Kawasaki Z650, if you're going up the scale and learning, you would soon want to, not soon, but you would want to move on. But I think with this XSR700, you'd be satisfied for a long time.
0: In our second segment, I chat with Steve Rapp, an ex-factory Suzuki and Ducati rider in the Moto America race series. Steve, among many other accomplishments, won the prestigious Daytona 200. He also competed with real credibility in a couple of MotoGP races for Richard Stamboli of Attack Performance. Since Steve retired from professional road racing, he became a commercial jet pilot, flying A320s out of LAX for Alaska Airlines. I suspect he's the only airline captain that's also an ex-professional motorcycle racer. Steve's calm, matter-of-fact delivery when talking about his high-speed escapades was interesting, to say the least. Very impressive guy, indeed. Reputation precedes it. Unmatched performance and striking style define it. We're talking about the 2023 Suzuki Hayabusa. This legendary sport bike is the quickest, most technologically advanced and aerodynamic Hayabusa ever. Its raw power and unparalleled acceleration matches your own drive, while its head-turning design embodies your spirit's flair. It comes in 3 new eye-catching color combinations and offers a full suite of available Suzuki genuine accessories that you can choose from. The ultimate rider waits. So head into your local Suzuki dealer now or visit suzukicycles.com to learn more. Yeah, you and I first first kind of met or I became aware of you, I don't know, like in the mid nineties, back when you were, when you were racing uh, in 600 Supersport in what is now Moto America. So how did, how did that get going? I mean, how did you get started in motorcycle racing?
2: Well, that's a good question. Um, my, my path to motorcycle racing was kind of unconventional from the, the normal, you know. Why say, doesn't that uh, surprise uh, me? <laughs> hey, of course not, right? Well, you know, as, as you know, I grew up in Northern California. Um, I loved, you know, motorcycles as a kid, but my parents didn't like motorcycles. So I kind of, I kind of, my career got delayed in that regard. So, um, when I turned 18, that's when I got my first motorcycle. And, and luckily, um, for me, I had a lot of luck in my career. Um, uh, a guy that I went to high school with, you might know, you might remember him. His name was Dave Stanton. Oh, I, so- I don't know him, but I've definitely heard of him. Yeah. Yeah, he he raced for John Ulrich back in the day when they were doing the endurance racing in the Weira. So uh, he, we went to high school together, and so I would go watch him race um, before I even had a motorcycle. And that got me interested even more, and I learned about racing. And so he was actually like my catalyst to actually figuring out what racing was about. And he helped me, of course, you know, with things, and uh, that kind of started it all. Uh, and then I started club racing, you know, locally, I, I, AFM, which was a, you know, a difficult club racing series, lots of good riders,
0: Primarily on California tracks. I take it.
2: Yeah. Mostly, you know, I, I started off at AFM at, uh, you know, what, Infineon or Sears Point as we know it. And, uh, and then from there I would, and then I started branching out a little bit and started going to Willow, uh, and doing stuff down there. And so that was kind of how I got started basically, but I was always on, you know, old bikes, you know just (laughs) shoestring but shoestring shoestring budget type deal where most people do some people don't do it that way but I was just you know borrowed everything so it was it was you know it's kind of that was my it was a slow start let's say (laughs) right yeah and you you've done some
0: motocross racing haven't you I mean was that sort of later on or did you did you start off on dirt bikes
2: no, I didn't do I just did their bikes for fun, kind of as when I was road racing professionally, I used that as like kind of a, like a training tool. You know, everyone was always trying to come up with new ways to be to be better, you know, or, or find better ways to work out or, or, or whatnot. And so that's what I did. Um, once I started actually racing professionally and getting paid, I actually moved from northern California to southern California um, for a lot of reasons, um, because the motorcycle industry was down here. And also the weather's great all you know, most of the year. So um, when I moved down, I lived in Corona originally. And that's just the epicenter of, you know, dirt bike riding. Right. And so so that's what I kind of did in the, uh, you know, maybe the off season or between races. Sometimes I'd go uh, go ride at some different tracks.
0: Yeah, very good. So then obviously you sort of progressed to 600 Supersport. And I first saw you at the final uh, AMA round in Las Vegas of... What was it probably 1997 i should think and and i was racing 600 supersport but like you i was on a shoestring budget and you know and my my willow club bike and it was just horrible so i was i don't believe i was actually last but i must have been pretty close <laughs> um but you were, you were you were charging round. i just remember seeing you just come down that back straight and hit the brakes the whole bike looked like it was absolutely out of control. And somehow you stayed on board and just did it lap after lap.
2: And I was like, <laughs> well, I, I guess he isn't out of control. It, it was really impressive. <laughs> oh, so, that's good to know. I wish I'd have known that back then.
0: Yeah. Yeah. But you actually did You actually did pretty well, didn't you? And, and ultimately, you, you uh, attracted the attention of, I guess, Suzuki? Or where, where did you first start? How did that progress?
2: Yeah, I always call it, it was, it was controlled, out of control riding. That was my style. <laughs> and um, and uh, yeah, so, you know, I mean, it's all part of the story. But um, when I was living in NorCal, I was working. I had multiple jobs, obviously, doing different stuff. I worked at a hotel, ballet parking cars. I worked at Cycle Gear, which was, at the time, a really small company. They only had seven stores in Northern California. Well, I worked at one of those stores part-time. No, and I met, and i and I met Dave Bertram and Hank Desjardins, which was the owners, not the owners, but Dave was the owner and Hank worked there as a marketing manager and whatnot. So, um, but, but Hank ran the race team that they had, uh, uh, AFM race team. And they had Cal Rayborn the third racing forum at the time. And oh. so that's kind of how I got started like on a real team with a real bike and had good results was because while I was working there, I got to know those guys. And, uh, I was racing my own bike at the time. It was like an old GSX-R 1100, but I had you know, pretty decent results. And so, um, that created a relationship. Anyway, I started racing for them in 96 was it? Yeah. 96 the year before you saw me at Vegas. And okay. So we did, we did just the AFM series, but I was on a, you know, I'm like a, you know, own crew, good bike, you know, everything, the whole deal. And so I was uh-huh. able to win the AFM, you know, the championship that they had there for the Formula Pacific. So that kind of, from that point, it was, you know, it kind of springboard us into like, what's next? Well, of course, the only thing at the time was really AMA racing. Right. And And right. so then I bought my own bike my own Suzuki that year when you saw me racing, that was my bike that I bought, but cycle gear helped me with as far as crew logistics, um, you know, sponsoring tires, all that stuff. So it was like a a kind of a combined effort of both of us kind of just doing whatever it took to get going. And, um, so that kind of, that got us that 96 year, which we did about five races. um, Right. Throughout the, throughout the country, we did the Vegas, we did Ohio, road America, Laguna, obviously, and um, a different another one. So that got us started. We did well enough in those five races that then the following year, which was 98 now, um, they uh, gave us Suzuki support with Cycle Gear's help also, and that was kind of a combined effort that turned into that San Gabriel water cycle gear effort in '98. And then that was my first full season, basically, it was 1998, and I did all the rounds. And I would have won the Supersport, the 750 Supersport Championship at the last race in Vegas, uh, but the bike broke, <laughs> oh. and so that was the year that Richie Alexander won the championship.
0: Okay, I remember. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. interesting. So, uh, yeah, yeah. Just as a, just as an aside, that was the first year that I met Nikki Hayden. Yes, and and he was racing there. And somebody uh-huh. said, Have you seen this kid, Nikki? And my buddy and I are, like walking through the pits and we see this chunky little young dude with <laughs> all over his teeth. I mean, he was a sort of a chunky little kid. And he walks up and we go to, Hey, are you, you Nikki? And he's like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And we're like, You know, you're doing pretty well. He's like, Well, you know, I like to slide the bike. <laughs> And I'm thinking holy shit this kid's going to the top you know I mean he really yeah. I he kind of saw it so it's kind of interesting but but yeah. yeah so that was that was that was very cool but your career moved pretty rapidly after that didn't it I mean where did you go next after uh,
2: after that it did and that was that was my career went really quick and the thing it was good and bad it was good because obviously some people never even get the opportunity. So the fact that I did was, you know, obviously amazing. The downside to it was, is I just didn't have a lot of experience because I didn't race as a kid. I didn't have any background in any other racing. And so I was just riding on luck and talent and skill basically. And, and well, who knows what else? And so when I got, <laughs> you know, the thing is, is you understand when you're at the, lower levels of club racing and whatnot you can get by on not knowing a lot about setup if you're just a really good rider or have a good bike or something like that but when right. you get to the ama level now you, now you can't have any weak links and and i did a little bit i didn't tell anybody of course but um <laughs> my my weak link was wasn't my motivation or my my conditioning or my my motivation it was my experience and i just didn't have the experience in bike setup and you know, how to communicate what the bike was doing and all that stuff. That was, I'd say my only part that that was my weak link in the beginning. Okay. And so, and so <clears throat> I went from the, after the 98 season, before that last race where my bike broke, I had actually already signed a contract to ride for Yoshimura in 99. Nice. Okay. And, and so that's when, um, if you remember, that's when Aaron Yates went to Kawasaki for one year with Muzzy. Yeah. Okay. And so I went into the Yosh spot and it was tough you know i mean you know mm-hmm. i always put pressure you know but then i put more and then there's expectations and then i was riding you know two different bikes i was riding the 600 and the super bike which is you know it's okay if you're really experienced and you know what you're doing but i didn't and right. so there's a lot of a lot of problems
0: yeah, you know, i rem- i remember you i remember you did you did crash a lot i mean yeah yeah you had some spectacular ones i don't know how you kept getting up from them but it had to be pretty demoralizing i mean how do you how do you sort of keep yourself going if if it gets to the point where you're just kind of not having fun or, or was it always fun even though you crashed
2: no no it wasn't it wasn't fun <laughs> that's the funny <laughs> thing about that's the funny thing is uh I never looked at racing was never, it was never fun. I mean, it was initially maybe in the first couple of years when it was my hobby type thing. But once, once you start, I don't know a lot of people, I think, um, uh, I just saw an interview with Ricky Carmichael, actually just a couple of days ago I was watching and there I interviewed him about racing and he said he hated racing. He just liked oh, winning, yeah. but he, he actually hated going to the races cause it was just stressful. And, and that's how I felt like I was always, once you started getting paid and it was my job and I was, and once I started relying on it for my income, and then that builds, that builds more pressure because now, you know, if you don't perform, you can't pay for your anyway. So it yeah. creates a lot of stress and pressure. So the fun went out the window years before that. Right. And, and it was just, uh, you find other ways, you know, like you want to be good. You like winning. Um, you know, you want to continue doing what you like. So that, those are the things I used to motivate me to keep going, even when it was bad. You know, right. and like like that year. And I had some good races here and there, but overall it was great. Right. And um, so, you yeah, know, luckily I didn't get hurt, uh, surprisingly. Right. and Yeah, uh, no, was you,
0: it was to... amazing how you just bounced. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I mean, it's always been a mystery to me how professionals, you know, if I crash at a certain point in the track, I can't help but go into that corner the next time out just with just a hair off you know where you just can't quite push it to that limit but as a professional you can't do that you've got a you you can't afford to lose that you know hundreds of a second or a tenth of a second in that corner you know just because you happen to have gone down there before so how do you how do you get over that how do you get over that mentally or do you just not think about it
2: well, it's a little bit everything it's you know it's it's i think everyone has the same thought process as you do like i remember you know after i crashed in a particular corner uh and you'd go back out again like yeah i would go through that corner the next couple laps not as hard as i had previously right um but instead of doing it for the whole day i'd only do it for maybe three or four laps you know okay in the next practice or the next qualifying and then i'd be like okay you know i got through that moving on and so i don't know what everyone does but that's you know you just you know, you just push through it. It's like a corner's a corner, a tires are tires, you know, you crashed in that one, so you back it down a little bit from what you did the prior time, and that's kind of the limit for that that particular corner, you know.
0: Right. 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 Um,
2: so yeah, yeah no one teaches you that stuff. You kind of just figure that out on your own and how you can and maybe that's what separates people, you know, that are successful more than others is that they can get past that mental barrier or they can forget about it or block it out, or whatever it is. I think that's part of the difference where you you know people always wonder like what's the difference between a a pro racer and a club racer and all these things and it's it's a lot of things but maybe that's one of them you know what I mean just one piece of it.
0: Yeah just being able to push through. Well anyway sort of on on sort of happier notes it it kind of uh you you went you went from Suzuki then you went to Ducati didn't you and you really started to make a name for yourself there.
2: Yeah that was a lot better obviously I was riding with the Vance and Heinz team in two thousand. Um sure. and there's a lot of things that were good about that, obviously one I was just riding one bike, which was i think that was the best part about it sure. um two the bikes it was an awesome bike it was the nine nine eight which was the last version of that of the nine one six um platform sure. and so yeah. it had been it had been just you know developed into this like work of art at right. that point, so it was the best of the version it could be at that point, so it wasn't i mean the bike was awesome um you, you know, you're getting at the time you're getting, you know, really good tires and it, I, everything I needed, I had at that point. So that was pretty good. That was a pretty right. good year.
0: Did you feel yeah, that yeah. as soon as you, the first lap you went out, you're like, Oh man, this bike is really, is the real deal.
2: Yeah. But the funny thing is what, and you probably know this cause you've ridden a lot of different bikes too, is when you get off of like a four cylinder inline four cylinder, like a GSXR that's, you know, super bike, um, form, um, you get on a Ducati and those V twins that the power is so smooth. It feels slower. Actually. It's not. Yeah. But just, but just the way the power comes on, like I got on it, expecting it to feel really fast, but it never really did. Yeah, interesting. Um, interesting. Because of that. And also because of the sound, because you're used to a inline four cylinder screaming at, you know, 14,000 RPM. And then you're on this thing and it's just got that low, mellow tone. So everything about the bike just felt, it just felt easier to ride it didn't sound like it was going fast and so because of that it just it made everything easier you know
0: really that's interesting wow yeah yeah how cool yeah yeah cool yeah you were right up at the you were right up at the pointy end then suddenly Mm -hmm. you started you know you were really really made a good name for yourself that was big respect there of course you know you're you're arguably most infamous for, you know, what happened at Road America in 2000, which was one of the most spectacular pieces of video that I think anyone's ever seen. Where the bike, mm. I mean, I would say you were probably responsible, or that crash was responsible for the invention of the brake lever protector. Probably wasn't it?
2: It was yeah. actually. It
0: yeah, was. that that was really when. You know, for sort of younger listeners who have always taken it for granted, probably assume that the manufacturers just came up with it. But actually it was that crash because your front brake lever hit the back of Kaczynski's bike as you all kind of slowed down for turn one, which had to be deep into triple digits. The bike then just destroyed itself. We all just held our breath on TV. And astoundingly, you just got up just ran back to the pits and got on your spare (laughs)
2: bike (laughs) Uh, i had a lot of luck i tell you a lot of luck (laughs) a lot of luck
0: yeah but that that,
2: was i mean i think people didn't realize i had never really it, it had probably happened at some point but maybe it wasn't on tv or maybe it wasn't as bad but with that the way that was and the popularity of the sport at the time and the fact that it was at the start of the race on this long straightaway it just really um really demonstrated that you know if that happens it can be really bad. And so because it was, you know, everyone saw it, that actually did create, I think people kind of were saying, hey, we need to do something about this. And I think at some point it was in the next, I don't know, maybe it was the next year that they came up with the uh someone came up with that brake guard uh yeah. for the front, yeah. which was it's it's good. I'm glad they did.
0: It is. Yeah. So yeah. Steve Steve's contribution to the sport among many other things. Yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, okay, Awesome. But then, of course, you then started going on. And, uh, I mean, you're a Daytona 200 winner. How did that come about?
2: Well, you know, that was in 2007. So between 2000 and 2007, there's a lot of, a lot of stuff going on <laughs> between that. Right, But, um, but, uh, you know, I was just, you know, timing, being at the right, on the right team at the right time. And, uh, in 2005 and six, I was riding for the, uh, the Michael Jordan team
1: right. and,
2: uh, yeah. and it, it was a pretty new team, but we actually had pretty good results. Um, Jason Pridmore at the time, he was a big, he was friends with Michael Jordan, obviously. And he was a big. Yeah. He, he's the only reason I was basically on the team. I think, um, yeah. he called me and asked me about it and and that's what got me on the team. Um, but we had actually, you know, considering the level that the team was at, because they just started out, we had some good results. Um, okay. I think I got I, I got the team the first podium ever uh, at California Speedway in, I think, 05. Okay. And so I had a pretty decent season from there. Um, those two years were pretty good. And then there was an opening at the uh, Kawasaki attack team in 2007. Uh, and if if, it's hard to remember everything, but that was the year they came out with the new ZX six. Uh, and so, so obviously, you know, in super sport racing, you know, if you have a bike that's two years newer, it's going to be quite a bit better than a two year older bike at the time because they were changing so rapidly, uh, you know, every couple of years that it was just a huge difference having a newer bike. So we had a good bike, obviously Richard, you know, everyone knows Richard Stamble even back then was just he's one of the best guys you could have on your team yeah yeah and yeah, man, right. just a good job. yeah. yeah. and so um it was all lined up you know a good bike we were on Pirelli tires which was kind of an unknown for me because I'd never ridden Pirelli tires but they were bringing the best tires they had which was coming from like world super sport world Superbike technology at the right. time which was really which was really good and so yeah. everything was everything was lined up and it was like this is going to be a great year And about three weeks prior to Daytona, um, I was super motoring. Like I said, I was always trying to think of ways to be a better rider, train harder, you know, all these things. And so I was super, I was super motoring, uh, down in SoCal and I crashed and I Uh dislocated my shoulder three weeks prior to Daytona. And I was kind of like, you know, just another, you know, another ding, right? Like this was supposed to be my great year and Uh I'm already hurt, you know? Oh man. And, and so, uh, I went to Daytona on the plane. I remember thinking like, this is a waste of time. I mean, I couldn't even pick up my arm. Like I had to, I had to use my left shoulder. I dislocated it. I had to pick up my hand with my right hand to put it up on the grip. That's how bad it was. And so I had no expectations. Um, you know, none of that. And so I kind of thought I was wasting my time even going there to be honest with you.
0: What did and, what
2: did the team say? What did Stamboli say? Was he kind of like, hey, you can ride if you want to, or see? Yeah, what you can basically. Yeah, Is he supportive? But, yeah, yeah, he's always been supportive. He was, you know, I told him I'd hurt my shoulder. I don't know if I told him how much I hurt it or how bad it hurt, but I right. I told him I dislocated my shoulder and it, you know, kind of hurt. Um, and they were kind of like, well, you know, what, you know, at that point where well, there's no one else to ride the bike, it's the first race of the year, you don't want to miss all the points, so it was one of those things like, yeah, you know, see how, see how it goes, do the best you can. Mm-hmm. Okay. And So I was kind of expecting just to ride around and, you know, and, and for some reason, the way I was sitting on the bike and the, and the way my, there wasn't as much pressure on my shoulder. And, and for some reason it didn't hurt as bad as I expected it to. And so, you know, through the wow. weekend, I just, I was able to kind of block it out and qualified not that great to be honest with you. I know I remember I qualified ninth. And that year, uh, Benotard was my teammate. He qualified, I think, tenth or something. And uh, the Pirelli qualifying tires that year weren't great, and so it put us back at the start. It was like, oh, great, this is going to be a rough race. And uh, <laughs> but 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 the tires for the race were actually amazing. They were they were bigger than than what Dunlop had been running, uh, so it had a lot of traction for 600. If you remember, that was a Formula Extreme bike, right? And um, and um, anyway uh through the race um it just everything was working the bike was good my shoulder didn't hurt as bad as as bad as I thought it was the tires were working great the pit stops were fast I think they're doing eight second eight second pit stops which were as fast as you could get it done
0: holy Um, mackerel that was changing both tires or just and fuel
2: yeah and fuel yeah yeah yeah. eight seconds
0: both tires
2: and fuel in eight seconds that's yeah I mean we barely, I barely had time to get a drink. I mean, it, it wasn't even a full drink. It was just, just go. And it was
0: quick gulps. And that was, it, it was
2: ridiculous. Yeah. Which was great. So we, we did, you know, we had everything lined up and uh, oh, the, yeah. race, the race was good. And, and I ended up winning it by I think 20 seconds over second place.
0: Yeah. I remember that. I remember yeah. that. That was, yeah, that was absolutely remarkable. So, uh, so you don't you don't get a Rolex for winning, do you? You only get it for setting pole position. Yeah, unfortunately. <laughs> well, unfortunately, but nice.
2: but there's some there. But with Kawasaki at the time, did have a really good bonus for winning. So uh, I could have bought a couple of the watches if I wanted to. So You could have bought yourself a Rolex. <laughs> okay. All right. I didn't. Fine. I didn't. But I could have. All <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. So
0: so now you know uh, mm-hmm. without diverting too much, but. Now you're a commercial pilot for Alaska Airlines. When did you start deciding that you wanted to learn to fly? Was it during your pro road race career, or was it afterwards where you're kind of like, uh, what do I do now?"
2: Yeah, well, that's a perfect segue because actually, um after I won Daytona, um it wasn't millions of dollars, but it was a it was a nice bonus. And it, and I'd always been thinking, even from the beginning of my career, I was always, you know, I was hundred percent focused on what I was doing, but I always was thinking like, you know, this could go away tomorrow. You just never know in racing. And so I was always thinking about what am I going to do? Like, I didn't really know. And it, and it bothered me. It really did. It was on my mind a lot. Of course. And so, um, and so I was constantly thinking, what can I do? What can I do? And never came up with anything for a while. And then after I won Daytona, um i was like you know what i've always been interested in flying um so i took some flying lessons not to be an airline pilot it was just for fun more than anything and when i started doing it it was like kind of like when you and i both first started riding motorcycles or going to the track it just instantly it was like a light switch turned on right and i was like and i was like this is it this is what i've been trying to figure out for the last 10-15 years you know
1: and so
2: Yeah. And so that, and because, because of that, I was able to, uh, you know, pay for my own flight lessons and buy a plane, a small, you know, small four seat plane to do my training in. And that just, that started it all. And that was in 2007. And, um, you know, I continued racing, uh, until 2016 was my last full season. Um, but I was able to, by 2012, I was able to actually get my first job at the uh, regional airlines while I was racing to kind of supplement my income to do both. And that, and that took off from there. Yeah. No, no, literally, literally. Yeah.
0: Yeah. No, L- no literally, that's awesome. So, yeah. so uh, I mean, you know, to me, if I look back at your career, there's a couple of sort of pinnacle moments and it probably isn't for you, but, but, you still, even now, hold the lap record at Big Willow. Big Willow is kind of where I I cut my racing teeth. You know, it's nine turns in Southern California. It's a crazy fast track. It's it's probably more technical than people realize, but it's just triple-digit insanity all the way around, which, of course, is what makes it so much fun. Mm -hmm. But you are actually still a lap record holder at that, I believe, a one-minute, 19-second lap time. And what, yeah. what, what was that on? And how the heck did you manage that? I mean, <laughs> my, fast, my fastest lap ever was a one minute 27. Let me tell you, if you're doing less than one minute 30s around Big Willow, you're sliding the tires. And at one yeah. minute 27s, I'm like, that's enough for me. And that's not going slowly, even though, I mean, typically, I mean, I think people lap in the 22s, 23s. So how you took two or three seconds off that, I will never know.
2: Yeah. It was one of those days where I just, every, like, you know, like you said, you, I remember I used to always hear people like, uh, you know, like Freddie Spencer and, and guys like that. They'd say like, man, when you're going really fast, and everything's working. It feels like it's in slow motion. And I never, I knew mm-hmm. what it meant, but I never experienced that. And so I was kind of like, yeah, I don't know, really know what they're talking about. Cause I always feel like I'm going really fast and, <laughs> you know, and so until that day, uh, pretty much that whole weekend was one of those weekends where everything was so easy and the bike was working so good it was like the ducati you know that was kind of made for those european type fast flowing tracks which willow was kind of, it wasn't a european type track obviously but it did have the fast corners which i think that bike really was suited for right and uh anyway so the, the day i the qualifying it was you know it was really good conditions no wind at willow which is rare as you know <laughs> yeah. um and it was just you know i was i was highly motivated <laughs> and uh and we had qualifying tires, obviously. So that takes off at least a second from a race tire, maybe a little more. And so, you know, it was just one of those things. It was the last race of the season. Um, you know, it was kind of like, you know, you never really hold back in qualifying. But at the last race of the year, you're kind of like, you know what, even if I do get hurt, you know, there's no more races anyway. So, you know, there's just a little bit less uh, You know, you hold back a little bit less in any of the corners, and so it was really—it was a good track for me. It was a good track for the bike, great tires, perfect conditions, and so you put all that together, and it was just—that's you know—it ended up being a 119, which was uh, you know, it's was uh, 23 years ago now, almost. That's which unbelievable. Is, uh, it's hard hard to believe even for me because the bikes and everything are so much better nowadays. Um, right. But regardless, it was great. It was it was that was definitely a highlight to that season. Um, you know, qualifying on pole, you know, and kind so, of my home track. Sure.
0: It's a, it yeah. sounds like it was, sounds like it was a, a pretty easy lap. So presumably you just got on the bike and just kind of everything came together. You just cruised round and was it a big surprise or?
2: Well, not really. I mean, I, that was one of my probably, I'd say my best track that I, that I rode at anywhere in the country. So I was expecting to do well. I knew I could go fast, you know, um, uh, and it, and it felt easy in a way because when you have so much traction, I mean, right. those the qualifying tires of that era. I mean, for one, it was only good for one lap. <laughs> and it really was like after, after, you know, on the second lap, the tires were kind of, they're coming apart. That's how soft they were. But, yeah. um, for that one lap, it literally felt like you were Velcro to the track. I mean, that's what they were like. And so it's hard to, for people to experience that who haven't, but it makes the bike, it doesn't move. It doesn't slide that much. It's just like literally just stuck to the ground. And so all with all that, it it didn't feel hard, but I did, I could tell I was going fast, just based on where I was getting on the gas, you know, how much sooner I was than, you know, with the race tires and where I was braking and all that stuff. So I knew it was a good lap. Um, and the thing I vividly remember about it was, is I think I passed Miguel. He was on the RC 51 that year. Right. And I think I passed him on starting my fast lap, coming down the front straight away, um, right. which helped me get a little, helped me get a little bit of a draft, so there, that helped a little bit. But what I remember about it was is I did my one lap, and I was expecting him to be right behind me, or past me even, to be honest with you. Right. Um, and so I came around and I did my fast lap, and I crossed the finish line. Uh, and I started, you know, I went into turn one full speed, like I always do. And then as I came out of turn one, the tire was already coming apart. And so I looked back thinking, oh, he's probably, you know, I want to get out of his way so he doesn't hit me or maybe he's going to do multiple laps. I didn't know. And when I moved out of the way to the right, coming out of turn one, he was at least two or three seconds behind me. And I was like, oh wow, I wasn't expecting that. And so (laughs) I kind of was already, I already knew it was a pretty good lap if you could do that. And right. so, uh, anyway, that's kind of how it came to be. You were kind of going into corners way harder than before, weren't you? And, uh, so that, that, that particular weekend, it was, like I said, it was the last race of the season. Um, I wanted to have a good race. I wanted, you know, everything to, to go well. And, uh, unbeknownst to me, um, when I showed up to the track on Thursday, um, one of my bikes had been, uh, commandeered from me because we, we always had two bikes. And they took one of my bikes away and gave it in mechanics and gave it to a uh, uh, Ben Bostrom that year was racing in World Superbike and having a really really good season. That was the year he won five races in a row or something. Right, right, right. On on the Ducati. And so yeah, you know, he was always having a great year, and, and he was always doing well over there. Um, and so they brought him over for the last race, but they didn't tell me. And and they took one of my bikes, and right. and I was just mad anyway about the whole thing. Not for not not to him personally, just the situation. no 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 of,
0: cu- no, of course yeah. no, 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 yeah. no of course not no 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 of course not. But at the same time, it's kind of like, oh wait a minute, you know, I want to give it my best effort. I've been doing it all season, and suddenly I've only got yeah. one bike. So yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, no, no criticism of anyone, but I can, yeah, I can definitely see how, you know, as a as a racer, and you want to go out on a good note, you feel like yeah. you've been, uh, you know, a little bit blindsided. So, but that, but that must've given you some extra motivation. I mean, did you just, you were going into the corners, like deeper and harder than ever before, you know? Yeah.
2: Yeah. I I had, I had, I was, that's when I said I was highly motivated. That's, (laughs) I mean, at that point, at that point it was like, you know, I just, I just, anything that was going to hold me back or or logic was gone. And so, (laughs) It just all, it was just, it worked out for the best, probably um, now, now that I can look back on it because, you know, I was always motivated, but that just put me, gave me that extra 10%, you know, because, because of that. So they might, they might've done me a favor by doing that um, in a way, because, you know, it just, I laid it all out on the line and uh, that whole weekend and it turned out good. I finished um, in the race. uh, I finished third. Which was not right. bad. It wasn't what I was expecting, but you got to consider the competition. Uh, Nikki won the race, obviously on right. the RC fifty one, and we we know Nikki was riding really well that year. And then right. John Kaczynski was my teammate, and he finished second, which was you know everyone knows his wow. his wow. career too. So uh, you know I finished behind some uh, some pretty good riders, and um, yeah. overall I consider that the whole year was pretty good. But even to end it on that note, I say it was a pretty good uh, a pretty good yeah. ending to that to that year.
0: Yeah. Yeah. That was awesome. And then, I mean, talking of, you know, sort of career highlights then ultimately you then ended up riding a MotoGP bike. How did that, how did that come about? <laughs> yeah,
2: that was awesome. I mean, it was literally it was, it was like, I it was one of the scariest things I ever had to do because I don't know how detail you want me to get into, but.
0: As much detail as you
2: can. Okay. Well, that year I was racing for Richard Samboli on the, uh, on the attack. We had a ZX 10 that year. We had, right. um, some, some partials, you know, partial sponsorship from motorcycle superstore, which enabled us to do the super bike season in 2012. Right. And it was a pretty good season. You know, I mean, it was one of those like, you know, lower budget type teams, you know, one bike, you know, type deals, but it was good. And we are always, we we're always doing pretty good and considering what we we're doing and, what we're what level we're at financially and whatnot so um it was the season was going great everyone was pretty happy with it um and then uh i think at some point during that year they announced uh, in the moto gp class that they were going to allow crt bikes which were the basically homemade chassis and swing arms with production motors and i had heard about it but didn't pay a lot of attention to it because you know it's just on a different planet basically for us uh but of course richard stamboli was an engineer and he had obviously made lots of parts and and all these different things over the years and he had interest as an engineer uh to building his own chassis swing arm and uh whatnot um so he called me um i think it was like four months prior to the laguna sacrum race for the moto gp race and um he had basically just was like hey I, i got a call out of the blue and he was like hey Hey, do you want to race MotoGP? And I was like, "Yeah, that's sure, that sounds great." How's that going to happen, though? And and he and he told me he said, "Hey, you know, there's this class, and you know, we can I can build my frame and swing arm, and we can use the, one of the ZX10 motors out of the bikes." And it sounded it sounded like a lot of work, and I, you know, I, I didn't think that's I actually didn't sketch, think it. I should think. Yeah, it was kind of one of those things. I was like, in four months, you're going to do all this, and he said, <laughs> "Yeah," and I was like great yeah let's do that and in the back of my head i, I honestly didn't think it was going to happen initially um but but it was you know it's cool that he even asked me i thought i was kind of kind of honored in that that regard but um yeah. but he actually as as we know i can fast forward a little bit and skip to he actually got the bike done and it was amazing uh that he got it done in four months from you know he sent me a picture of aluminum blocks on a rolling cart and four <laughs> months prior, and, and he sent me a picture saying, "Here's your bike," and you know I was a little skeptical when I saw that. I was like, "Wow, okay." Um, but he got it done, um, and uh, you know it was last minute. He was struggling to get everything done. Uh, he had a uh, we had a few problems with this with the rear shock last minute, so he had to rebuild the whole rear swing arm. Uh, oh, literally. Uh, within you know a day of us uh, within a day of us going to test uh, we we're supposed to test at button willow for four days prior to the laguna race so it was basically going to be uh monday tuesday wednesday thursday at button willow and then friday saturday sunday at laguna for the MotoGP gp race so it was going to be seven days of riding it was going to be a lot you know, I mean, just the whole project, the amount of time, you know, spending right. all the energy testing and then going to this rate, it was, it was just, it was daunting a little bit, but I was up for it. I was in, you know, part of the best shape I've ever been uh, physically, mentally, my experience was the highest it's ever been. Uh, and so I felt as well prepared as I could be for something like that. So we were, we were going to do it. Um, everything was set up. Bridgestone was at Button willow waiting for us because they wouldn't give you the tires because they don't oh. want people to have the people don't want them to have their tires because they can you know, see how they build them or whatnot so you actually had to hire the Bridgestone crew to come to the track with the tires they change the tires you never touch them so they were at the track everyone's ready to go but the bike he had some he had some issues getting parts and whatnot so we uh long story short we actually ended up not testing at all <laughs> whoa so you had no testing at all before you turned up at Laguna the bike had never been ridden ever. He built this bike. <laughs> um, he is the first time he built the whole complete bike. I'm pretty sure uh, to that level. And um it was amazing. He did a great job, but still it was a brand new bike that had never been ridden ever. And so wow. as, as you know, you know, everyone knows really is, you know, when you have a brand new bike, whether it's a production bike or a home or, or a custom bike, it takes a while to get things to work right.
1: Oh, And course.
2: we just, we didn't have any time. We The bike had never been ridden. It had brand new carbon rotors. I'd never ridden on those. It had brand new Bridgestone tires, which I'd also never ridden on. You know, it had the geometry um, and, and the electronics, which all needed to be dialed in, spring rates, gearing. I could go on, but it's a lot.
0: How do you build a chassis with tires as stiff as the Bridgestone as MotoGP tires are? And with that level of grip, how do you... I mean, you just build it (laughs) as stiff as you possibly can. I mean, he must, that must've been just crazy guesswork.
2: You know, I think it would be great. I think your next, uh, your next call, next Zoom call should be with Richard Stambol and he could fill in a lot of the blanks that I'm, that I don't (laughs) actually know about because he could actually, he could tell you lots of interesting things. I think more interesting than from my aspect of it because um, yeah, who knows? I have no idea how you do that. I don't know.
0: That's a remarkable achievement
2: that he did that. That's astounding. It is because, you know, you watch MotoGP teams and they they're constantly testing multiple variations of the same frame, you know, with different thicknesses, different, you know, all sorts of different same frame, but just different kinds of metal, carbon swing arms, like all these different things, just looking for that perfect, perfect, you know, that setup. And uh, whatever he did, he got it pretty good because the tires weren't wearing out too much. It felt pretty good. It wasn't unstable. It, you know, all these things that you need, it, it was actually was that.
0: So what know? was it like pulling out of the pits on and first practice for the first time ever? You're like, oh, my God, you know, yeah. <laughs> you take it in a MotoGP race on a yeah. bike that had never even turned a wheel.
2: Yeah, it was shocking. I mean, I, I, I got to be honest, like I didn't think they were going to let us. <laughs> I honestly didn't think they'd let us on the track it didn't seem like a good idea to me, but we were in so (laughs) deep at that point that I couldn't really say no, you know, it was just one of those situations you're in and you just kind of like, you know, it is what it is and what come, what come is what happens, you know? Uh, And so, uh, yeah, I rolled out into that first, I think Friday morning practice FP one at Laguna Seca on a bike that had never been ridden on brand new tires with brand new unbroken carbon rotors never been broken in. I mean. The wow. gearing, we don't, You know, uh, the gearing obviously wasn't going to be perfect. The Spring rates and, and offsets weren't obviously going to be totally perfect either. So, you know, if I just made it to that first practice, I was going to be happy. And so, uh, you know, we got through it and there was lots of, I mean, you got to imagine the amount of work we had to do just to get this thing to And it was, you know, it was a lot. Uh, we made it through the weekend. Um, fortunately, I think for us, we didn't qualify for the race which sounds weird but um we just weren't ready i mean it, we, right. we really weren't and and to be in a race out there it just didn't make sense right at all for me so i was kind of glad we did it was basically a test session you know in MotoGP gp practices and qualifying which isn't ideal either but we made it through didn't crash the bike um you know all that stuff well that's huge because he, prob- he probably didn't have a spare yeah not a lot of spare parts as far as like the main stuff goes uh, just just the basics you know Handlebars, pegs, whatnot. Um, so anyway, it it, it was as bad as it was. It actually turned out okay, I think. Um, the bike still needed a lot of dialing in, and so we it, that gave us a break, about a month break before the next race was going to be the Indianapolis Motor GP. Um, and, right. and so that gave us a month that we actually went and rode the bike uh, twice. We rode it a Fontana or California Speedway for two days. Okay, made a lot a lot of huge changes. Um, got the bike definitely rideable. Um, and then we actually got one test day at Indianapolis um, a couple of weeks oh, okay. prior to the race. And so that helped us really get the bike more dialed in for that track with gearing, spring rates, whatnot. And so the way it all worked right. out, that by the time we actually showed up for the race weekend, we were pretty well sorted. The bike was pretty good. I was feeling confident. I knew the tires, the brakes were work. Everything was working. Um, and we were able to get through the right. weekend and we had some problems still, you know, uh, as far as in one of the practices, I lost one of the FP3. I, I didn't even get to practice at all because I had spun a rod bearing in FP2 right at the end. So I lost some track time there and they were able to fix the motor that we had. Um, right. It was actually a blessing in disguise, shockingly, because they had a really light crankshaft in it so it would rev quicker but the bike was very powerful and very hard to ride from most bikes I'd ridden. Um, and so because of that, he didn't have an extra crank shaft. So they had to put a stock one back in it, which I thought was going to be bad, but it actually was better because it's, it's heavier. And because of that um, it revved up a little bit slower and it actually made the power more controllable. And it actually made our lap times faster.
0: <laughs> Interesting. And it probably, probably didn't shred the tire quite as easily as well.
2: Well, it wasn't shredding the tire, but it did spin the tire because the power came on so aggressively. And so because right. of all that, it just actually made the bike a lot more rideable and easier to ride. And the lap times were faster because of that. And so um, that actually helped us in a weird way, uh, surprisingly. Anyway, huh. uh, we made it. We got, we qualified. Uh, you know, We qualified for the race. Um, there was, I think 10 other CRT bikes in the race that year. Cause there was about half and half, half prototype, half CRT bikes. Um, that right. year. anyway, uh, throughout the race, there was a lot going on. Um, but I ended up finishing 14th, um, no crashes. That's really impressive. <laughs> it was, it was, it was the most, it, I, you know, I, I, I think I told you before I was, um, at the end of that race, i I felt like there was nothing else I could have done. There was, I could not put any more energy into it. I could have not pushed any harder. I mean, literally it was one of those things where it took literally all the years of experience I had for that one race to work out the way it did. And so it just was perfect timing. And it it was one of the highlights of my career for sure. Obviously it's not, you know, like you're winning a race, but just the fact that I was able to compete in a race like that in America, on a you know basically considered as a homemade bike to some degree, yeah, yeah, I look at it as, as a huge success, and it was it was the highlight of my career for sure. What
0: an achievement! Yeah, it yeah. really was. Yeah, I mean that race that race literally only took one thing, everything you had.
2: Yeah, it, literally everything I had. Amazing. And when I was done, I could barely walk. I, I mean everything. My muscles were just you know it's thirty two thirty two laps of just the most intense. Heart rate, uh, you know, the way I was riding, just, yeah, it took everything, but it was good. I'm happy with it.
0: Yeah, I'll bet. Was there a massive difference? I mean, was it a big shock that the difference between a MotoGP prototype bike um, and the bikes you'd ridden up until then, or are they pretty similar?
2: No, it was definitely everything about it was just, you know, it's a little bit lighter, more power. The tires were just, I mean, uh, you know, you always hear about these, these, you know, at the time it was the Bridgestone tires. Um was this right. back tire in the series? and um it just yeah, it was just neck everything was just even even that bike was next level. you know, the carbon brakes, everything was right. just higher performance, higher lean angles, higher corner speeds, later braking points. it just everything's intensified um, more than it had been on anything else I'd ridden previously. Um, not necessarily harder to ride because the bikes it's in has more control because of all those things i just talked about but it's just a right. higher level of pushing harder for longer and more laps and it was just it was definitely um you could tell you know it was a higher level of racing for sure
0: wow impressive yeah so then ultimately you you hung up your leathers and now you're a, a full-time pilot and uh and how's that going you, you just love doing that
2: yeah, I do. I mean, I continued racing after that. That was 2012, so I put in another four years, um, kind of balancing between different teams, and and you know, I rode the I rode the Harley for a couple of years and won the championship in I think 2013. So that was that was more fun. It was you know the lower level type racing, but racing against still great guys. Right. Um, so that was great because it, it really you know it's really tough to leave a sport like that that you love and you've been doing for so long and to to just quit and leave. I didn't have to do it. Luckily. I think I was lucky because I was able to like kind of slowly phase myself out over the years versus just quitting out of the blue. Right. Um, so yeah, so I was able to race full time, but still on a lower level for four years after 2012 until my last year in 2016, and that whole time, I I was already flying professionally full time. Um, in 2013, the year after the G, MotoGP race, I um, I got hired at Virgin America. Oh, nice. Um, and yeah, so I was I was flying full time, which you know was nice to know that I had a, a something else going on and a, another career that I enjoyed um, while I was still racing. And then um, yeah, the last year was 2016. I raced on the uh, the Shiby BMW 1000 motor American that was that was a great way to kind of end it and at that point I'd been flying full-time for years and everything was going great and uh yeah until today I'm still still flying um uh, Virgin America was purchased by Alaska Airlines uh in 2017 I believe 16 and um anyway so I'm still flying I I fly the Airbus uh 320-321 models out of Los Angeles and um yeah i enjoy it i thoroughly enjoy it um i feel so lucky to to find something you know outside of racing because it's it's sometimes really hard right uh to find a find something you're so passionate and you love as much as you did racing and so uh for me to be able to do something like that it's yeah it couldn't gone much better
0: right that's awesome it makes uh you know the sort of the level of uh of you know risk taking and risk management that you do in racing probably served you pretty well in in professional flying i would think
2: yeah i mean it's it's obviously completely different um it's obviously a highly controlled environment and regulated and training and whatnot but but there's a lot of things um that you actually can take from racing that you that you wouldn't think because i mean basically you know you're operating a machine like a motorcycle but you're in a plane at high speeds things can happen quickly you have to be able to think far ahead of the plane and what's going to happen and you know, when you're racing, that's pretty much what you're doing the whole time. You're constantly right. thinking ahead, thinking about multiple things while you're going, you know, 150, 160, 170 miles an hour. Sure. And so there's a lot of things that actually do actually um, help a lot as far as flying goes.
0: Mental clarity. Yeah. When you see things like the new king of the baggers class, you know, in Moto America, are you ever tempted to go, oh, you know what, maybe I'll just put in one more season, you know, <laughs> <laughs> and thrash a Harley around, around some tracks? You know, no.
2: <laughs> and, then, <laughs> I, and you know and i don't know why i mean there's probably a lot of reasons but just to be honest you know when i rode the xr the 1200 it was cool it was a cool looking bike you know um it was right. kind of it had that dirt track kind of and vibe to it but you know in order for me to ride right. and i have to be somewhat interested in the bikes that i'm riding and uh that's right. just not my thing it wasn't my style i don't I don't know. It's just, yeah. I, I never was tempted at all ever to do that. So, um, yeah. All right. you know. Yeah. Fair enough. Fair enough.
0: Well, it's kind of like, you know, you've, you've been there, you know, you've done that. You did it for a long time. You were very successful at it and now you kind of moved on. So yeah. So kudos to you.
2: Yeah. Thank yeah. you. Yeah. Right.
0: Thank you. Hey, I really appreciate you coming onto the podcast. It was awesome listening to it. I just, uh, love hearing about, you know, your experiences.
2: Really yeah. cool. Thank you. No, I, I wish, I wish I would have, um, I know when, when you're at the track, we're all focused and it's like, you know, game face and all that, as you know, but, um, yeah, I wish I would have had more time to socialize with you and other people, you know, while I was at the track, but it's just such a, you just, you're so, you know, you're near the track. You're so focused on what you're doing. It's like, it's hard to even think about anything else, but, um, anyway.
0: Yeah. Hey, thanks, man. I really appreciate it. Really appreciate your time and, and, uh, and your energy is really, really great to hear.
2: Thank you. I really appreciate it too. I'll be around if you ever need anything or want to catch up.
0: All right. Thanks,
2: Steve. All right, talk soon. All Bye. Right, see Bye.